seated. If you'd like to turn with me in the Bibles, we're, in your Bible, we're going to Micah ch- chapter 4. Micah, you might remember, is a contemporary of Isaiah, whom we read earlier. I kind of joke about Micah being mini Isaiah. Mini Isaiah, Micah. Putting it, uh, putting it together, uh, uh, the one is considerably shorter than the other but uh, includes the same themes and here in chapter four, some of the very same words that this testimony of an age of peace might be the combined uh, word of these two magnificent prophets in the days of Ahaz. Here now from Micah chapter four and we'll read in chapter five. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all people walk in each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in peoples, in pieces rather, many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, 
whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we need to have that divine light to make plain some of these dark prophecies of old. How we long to see that reign of peace and the effect of the Prince of Peace among the nations. We pray, O Lord, that you would haste this day. Now, our Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, even now bless our time of study in your holy word, that we too might be built up in it, and that we might be peacemakers. And so prove ourselves to be the sons of God. We pray that you would bless us in our uh, following of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose name is to be great to the ends of the earth, that we too, as his joyful ambassadors, might uh, haste that day with our praying and our speaking, and may these things be fulfilled as we read them now, as we study them, as we ponder over them, and we pray, O Lord, come in Jesus' name. Amen. The word Advent, you might know, uh, simply means uh, a, a coming. Uh, at some point many years ago, I don't know exactly how, it became traditional for ministers of the word to preach this time of the year on both comings of the Lord. That is to say, both his first and second advent, his coming as a babe in Bethlehem and his coming again to rule the world in righteousness. The passage before us brings both of these advents, both of these horizons together. This prophecy was given in the dark days of a moral and religious collapse in Israel. King Ahaz had officially introduced religious pluralism into Judah. There were now literally two altars at the Lord's temple, and the people were worshiping other gods at practically every high place and every green tree, if we are to understand the prophets correctly. Judah was paying tribute to Assyria for their national security, but that security was being severely threatened by the same. There were very bad times uh, coming ahead, spiritually, economically, militarily, and perhaps it couldn't seem like things would get worse, but here at the end of chapter 3, just before we started to read uh, verses 9 through 11, we, we read, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, her prophets divine for money. Ungodliness, in other words, has just won the day, and now God's judgment has arrived in the form of the Assyrian army, the reference to the siege. The year is 701 B.C. The Assyrian conqueror Sennacherib has already completely devastated Judah, uh, taken some, I can't remember, 30-some, 40-some cities. He boasts about it. We have it in his library. He's now laid siege to Jerusalem, and to the disgrace of King Hezekiah, uh, he's, uh, there's, no, there's no strength left. The reference here in chapter 5, verse 1, he's laid siege against us. He will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. 
uh, Hezekiah will be greatly shamed, though not destroyed. And so, uh, once again, back just to pick up the context in chapter 3, at the very end of chapter 3, verse 12, it concludes with a warning that Jerusalem, sorry, that Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. Uh, this is the end, he's saying. But of course, it's not the final word. And here in his wrath, God remembers mercy. The bad news is covered largely in the first three chapters of this prophecy, if you'd like to read that later. Uh, but, but at this very dark and dismal, discouraging time, it's, it's then with, uh, as it were, the, the armies of Sennacherib uh, surrounding the city that, that the Lord gives the hope of glorious days to come. The crisis that Jerusalem was facing was ultimately a crisis of leadership, but God is giving here the ultimate answer that though they will go into Babylon, yet he'll, he'll remember them there, and there will be a great future, and he will send his own shepherd king. That's very interesting. Like almost all the, such visions of the future, Micah's prophecy moves effortless, effortlessly from the present distress of the, of the current situation and uncertainty to future deliverance of a most momentous kind. Chapter 4 looks to the last days, the days in which Zion will be exalted. And this will be God's final word, not the word of judgment and darkness, but a word of blessing and glory. There shall be a magnificent reversal for Zion, once plowed like a field. Later, among the nations, great in the last days. Now, the, the, the last days, by the way, if you, if you missed that, uh, I showed you a couple weeks ago, it's a very long period of time, beginning with the Savior's birth. Uh, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Uh, uniformly in the New Testament, it speaks of the Messianic age, almost always that way in the Old, it, uh, an age that continues to this day. So here we are in these last days. And where then is the fulfillment of these things, we want to know. If these are the last days, where are the swords being beaten into plowshares? Well, let me also say one more thing before we dive in. These prophets glimpsed the future, as it were, all at once. You've heard me say this a few times if you've been around. Time to the prophets seems not to matter at all. Uh, many say it's kind of like looking at the range of mountains here as we, as we look west to the Alleghenies. It, it looks like we just have a continuous uh, line of mountains and the foreground blends into the background and it all looks like one line until you get up close and then you realize, oh no, there's, there's mountain after mountain after mountain. There's great distances and ranges between the peaks and, and so it so often is in the prophets. They, they describe everything as if it's coming all in one, at one time. For example, Daniel chapter 2, the, this wonderful prophecy of the Messiah's kingdom is like, he says, a, this, this little stone cut out without hands that strikes the great statue of, of, of man's kingdoms and shatters it. And then this little stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. I mean, that's the glimpse, but of course you realize it, it, we, are long, we are centuries, we are millennia into the fulfillment, and it's only gone so far. It, it all makes it seem like it'll happen at once. 
But the, the truth is, it, it began at our Lord's first advent. It will continue into our Lord's second advent. It, it, even if it makes it sound like it'll happen in one afternoon, it, it, it glimpses the whole future in one portrait. Or I've heard it explained this way. Um, suppose I were to, 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 to predict at the beginning of the 19th century that there would be two Englishmen who would arise and stop the advance of a French general and crush his empire. Uh, now, as the history played out with Napoleon and so forth, you know that this would be a completely accurate uh, description of what would come. But I would not be mentioning all the battles that would happen between these mighty forces. I would not mention that between Trafalgar and between Waterloo would be this long period of Napoleon's first defeat, his exile, his return, the Hundred Days. I would not be men mentioning that the number of years it would take to vanquish him. It's, it's like it's all going to happen at once, like two men just show up and put an end to Napoleon. But it's in fact only if you understand the history that I, I was talking, I'd be talking about one, one admiral, one general, and many years of, of strife. Similarly, biblical prophecy has this sweeping vision of the future that history will turn out in such and such a way, and we understand that in these last days things go a little slower than we might have hoped. This is the way that we are to understand Micah's vision, uh, this multifaceted prophecy that I've read to you from chapters 4 and 5, that the last days bring to the world universal worship and universal obedience, universal peace, a Jewish restoration from exile and spiritual renewal, the messianic rule, and the saints' victory. It sounds glorious, like it's all going to happen at once. No wonder the people in Luke 19 were those who, quote, thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. I mean, here's the king. Where's the kingdom? They thought it was all going to come. Well, from the perspective of ancient times, uh, this will... This prophecy hides all the complexities and difficulties. They knew that Messiah was coming, and they waited. And now here we are, 2,000 years after his first advent, still waiting for these things in their fulfillment, uh, probably. So what we have in Micah chapter 4 and 5 is this, is this prophecy of, 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 the, of the future, that, as it were, encompasses everything between the Messiah's first and second advent. Now, what is it that we are to look for in the fulfillment of these things? I'll basically break it down into two parts, chapter 4 and chapter 5. don't want to get into all the uh, specifics of that, but, but broadly speaking, chapter 4, we have the age of universal worship and peace. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and so forth, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Well, what is this about a mountain, the mountain of God being exalted over all the other mountains? Well, we remember that Israel was worshiping every other god and goddess on every hill in those days. Indeed, all the nations of the earth did, and still to this point, uh, do the same in so many pagan lands. Um, from ancient times, temples were built on mountains. 
and uh, they were, if, they weren't, if there wasn't a mountain in sight, they were built to look like mountains, so that the Giza pyramids rise like mountains from the plains of Egypt, and the ziggurats of Babylon, or uh, the temples of the Aztecs, they, they rise like mountains, or today you go to Japan or China, at the top of every mountain, you're going to find a place to worship some god or goddess. A mountain was a kind of stairway to heaven, and at the top of that, uh, where heaven and earth met, well, there Zeus was on Olympus, or Brahma was on Mount Meru. But Micah sees a day when Mount Zion is then raised over all the mountains, and all the people who dwell on the face of the earth go up to Zion, and peoples and nations flow to it, the heathen ascending to the true God where he has set his name. Uh, we, of course, as I mentioned earlier, have to read such things in light of the book of Hebrews uh, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. We have to read it in light of what Jesus said. I read it to you this morning. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will Jews or Samaritans worship the Father. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. So I'm saying here, th this mountain called Zion which is definitely not the tallest of mountains. In fact, just, just if you've been to Israel, right over, the, right over the Brook Kidron is the Mount of Olives, which is higher than Zion, right? Um, Zion's not particularly uh, high, and it will not be exalted above Mount Everest in that day. We understand poetic terms uh, are, are, are used in such prophecies, uh, the, the future couched in those familiar spiritual and cultural references, but Micah is speaking of a day when, as it were, all nations would at last come up to Zion and worship Jehovah as fulfilled Hebrews and John tells us right here in spirit and in truth. We have come to Mount Zion. And so, chapter 4. The remnant of Israel becomes a powerful nation and returns to the Lord, and all the nations will join with them. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion and they will overcome their enemies. This vision of universal victory, worship, and peace. Christians have disagreed whether, of course, this prophecy is to be fulfilled um, uh, when and, and where. But, but this I will say for sure. It was the delight of the early Christians. You read some of the early fathers. They, they look back at these prophecies of Isaiah and Micah and say, do you see how it even now is being fulfilled through the advance of the gospel. I mean, uh, around 125, I think uh, Justin Martyr writes, we can show you how this has already happened. That a band of 12 men went forth from Jerusalem. Then they were common men, not trained in speaking. But by the power of God, they've testified to every race of mankind that they were sent by Christ to teach the word of God. Uh, Theodoret adds, this evangelical law and apostolic preaching began with Jerusalem as with a fountain and has traveled across the whole world. Well, this much I say is for sure. The good news has been going forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we read here, the effect of this gospel is to bring peace, Micah says. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. 
kids. That's the, the thing at the front of the plow that, that uh, digs into the ground to uh, plant your crops. So weapons of war turns into weapons, turned, in, turned, in, turned into implements of prosperity. Spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Here is this glorious Christian vision of the last days, a vision of God's holy law of love that combines with the spiritual power of peace to bring the nations themselves into harmony. The enemies uh, at last become friends and hatred and war give way to love and peace. Uh, you might know that the park across from the United Nations building in New York City has this very verse from Micah on the wall expressing the hope that the Lord would fulfill his word through the work of diplomacy. However, as we will see, Micah does not envision peace among nations through diplomacy, but rather as they come humbly to worship before the Lord and learn his law and learn to walk in his ways uh, the result of the messianic uh, age here. But that's, I'll bring up that in a second. So, okay, well, that's the meaning of the passage, more or less, but uh, now we have to have the big question, when are these things going to be fulfilled? Um, and just by way of review, some people think that these prophecies have already been fulfilled in the church, in the peace that we have in Christ, and they will supremely be fulfilled in heaven, fully and finally, as the saved nations walk in the light of that peace revelation. The classic amillennial view held even today by more than three-fourths of the professing church. Some people, however, think that uh, Christ is going to return to set up a kingdom and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem before the end. And it's then, at least supremely, that these prophecies will be fulfilled. They have not been fulfilled yet, but we look to the future. So one looks basically to the past and says that it has been fulfilled in the church and... Uh, the other one looks to the future and says, well, this, this, is, this speaks about an age yet to come. That's the premillennial view. Then there's the postmillennial view. Uh, still others saying that this prophecy is currently being fulfilled, however slowly. And uh, since this is the kingdom, of, the kingdom age, but the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts very small, yet it grows till it's greater than all. It's like a little bit of leaven that's put into the great mass of meal. Since it's all leaven, it's not going to appear all at once. And likewise here, the prophecy is being fulfilled, and yet it will be fulfilled more in the present age, more than it has been in the past, or as Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, a, a post-millennial view. So, uh, I should point out, by the way, that uh, the premillennial view became very dominant in American evangelicalism in the, in the 20th century. Uh, the postmillennial view was uh, much more dominant in the 1700s and the 1800s, especially the century of missions. Um, and lots of references, by the way, you're probably hearing about that right now on the radio as you hear songs about the, the age of peace or the age of, of gold that's coming to the world. Uh, a lot of those hymns written in the 1800s ha still have this theme. For example, it was during the American Civil War that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem that's been made into a song, often heard this time of year, a song about the hearing of the church bells play 
that f those familiar carols of peace on earth, goodwill toward men, which were then drowned out by the thundering of cannon fire. And so he picks up his pen and writes a poem, um, which you probably heard sung. I'll just read it to you. Uh, here's at the end here. Then in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Well, perhaps prophecy has never been easy to believe, but uh, it's very hard, I admit, to uh, hold on to such a prophecy at a time of war. But Longfellow nevertheless concludes his poem this way. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. His point being, despite the terrible miseries of the nations in their wars and fighting today, we can be confident that the Lord is at work praying and laboring that such a vision of hope may yet be fulfilled more and more in our world. When hope seemed to be lost in Israel in those days of war, when the enemy was at the gates starving the people of God within and they had no strength to withstand them, at a time in which discouragement and need were profound, God lifts the eyes of his people to a majestic, glorious description of what will come to pass in the latter days. So, chapter 4, a vision of all the nations coming to worship and learn the ways of the Lord, and the result of this universal peace of nations not learning war anymore, beating sores into pruning hooks, and the victory of the saints among their enemies. It promises restoration from exile and the renewal of the people of God. And we need such an encouraging vision for the same reasons in our day. Point one from chapter four, the age of universal worship and peace. Yeah, perhaps past, perhaps future, perhaps being fulfilled right now. People disagree, but that's the prophecy. Second, we are, they are told of the age of Messiah and his coming kingdom. The age of Messiah and his coming kingdom. Uh, chapter 5 begins, Gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, for he has laid siege, laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Hezekiah is going to be humiliated. In other words, they're not destroyed. Once again, in the glimpse of the future, we see the big picture that ultimately their hope is not going to be in Hezekiah, but in another son of David. One born as his great, 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 great grandfather was in Bethlehem. Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the region, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, of everlasting. This here is uh, uh, clear as we go on. The messianic king, the one who is great in his person, great in his calling, great in his ministry, 
great in his salvation. First, he great in his person. It says, his goings forth are of old, from, of ever, from everlasting. An unusual statement. Scholars disagree. Some translations, like mine, say that Messiah is from everlasting. That is to say, a divine origin. Um, certainly, Jesus Christ is divine and eternal. And that phrase is translated that way elsewhere. But others of you have that one from who's going forth are from ancient days, perhaps referring to Christ's human lineage going back to David in Bethlehem. Um, whether it points to uh, eternity as the divine son or to the old days of Bethlehem and David, both are true. He is the son of God, the son of David, great in his person, Great in his ministry, he's going to stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and in, the, in his name they shall abide. Here is the good shepherd, unlike those corrupt leaders of Micah's day who lead the people into ruin. The kings of Israel and Judah had been tyrants. Their yoke was heavy, but our king has a, has a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. He is meek and lowly in heart. He commands a willing obedience of the loved and well-cared-for sheep given freely to their shepherd, whose voice they know. Never did God's people have such a king like him. And how happy are the people of his pasture. And also here, his name shall be great to the ends of the earth. All kings are going to bow down before him. We read elsewhere, all nations shall serve him. These prophecies of the coming Messiah gave those people hope for those many dark centuries, for those years in exile as they looked finally to the last days and the coming of the King of Kings. So here we are on the other side, still, as it were, looking forward to his advent, his second advent, and the fulfillment of every promise, um, yet uh, holding on to this hope that as he has come, that yet his name is destined to be great to the ends of the earth. Such prophecies I mentioned earlier had an incalculable effect on the century of missions, the 19th century missionary movement, emboldening pioneer missionaries to go where others had not gone and to stay long after many were tempted to return. For example, uh, William Carey, uh, you, you might know, um, uh, started the Missionary Society first first sermon of the Missionary Society was on these glorious messianic prophecies of the conversion of the nations. He goes there in tremendous hope and expectation. But you know the story, perhaps I've told you before, one year in India, no converts. Two years, no converts. Three years, nothing. Four years, no converts. Five years, no converts, not one. After five and a half years, he wrote to his friend, Samuel Pierce. The work to which God has set his hands will infallibly prosper. Christ has begun to besiege this ancient and strong fortress, and he will assuredly carry it. Well, still not one convert after six years. Finally, after seven years, Krishnapal converted to Christ, his first, and at that time only convert. And William Carey writes, he was only one but a continent was coming behind him. The divine grace which changed one Indian's heart 
could obviously change 100,000. Or was it today 1.4 billion? You might think of David Livingston, who traveled some 29,000 miles, most of it on foot. His vision for the future permeated every endeavor. He writes, a minister who had not seen so much pioneer service as I would have been shocked to see so little effect produced. But time must be given to allow the truth to sink into the dark mind and produce its effect. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's enough. We can afford to work in faith, for God is pledged to fulfill the promise. One other day he writes, a quiet audience today, the seed being sown, the least of all seeds now, but it will grow a mighty tree. It is, as it were, a small stone cut out of the mountain, but it will fill the whole earth. Another day, Livingston writes, we work for a glorious future which we are not destined to see. We are only morning stars shining in the dark, but the glorious morn will break. Well, here are two men who took this prophecy seriously. If Jesus' name is to be great to the ends of the earth, then our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We look for an advent of Christ and we look ahead to the fulfillment of his kingdom. But in that day, there will be men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Christ has purchased them by his blood. And this knowledge has led Christians to invest in great works, building in foreign lands, orphanages, hospitals, schools, seminaries, anticipating that their work is going to be carried on in future years by indigenous populations to reach their own nations for the Lord Jesus. Again, Carrie, we work for a glorious future which we are not destined to see. What does Isaiah 4 and 5 mean for our lifetimes? Well, the Lord only knows. But in times of darkness, we turn once again to see the sure hope of the messianic age. In conclusion, God would have his people be beacons of hope in a hopeless world. And not only hope, action. This hope has the practical power to encourage us through days of victory to press on to victory. This very prophecy of Micah's and others like it have been preached countless uh, 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 missionary societies and uh, similar meetings to encourage God's people in a variety of ways. William J. writes this in his uh, dedication to the evening exercises of William Wilberforce, a name I hope you know. I rejoice, my dear sir, that a person of your consideration is in the healthful number of those who, notwithstanding the contemptuous denial of some and the gloomy foreboding of others, believe that real religion has been advancing and is spreading and will continue to spread till without any disruption of the present system, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. If we are not to be weary in well-doing, we need not only exhortation, but hope, which is at once the most active as well as the most cheerful principle. Nothing so unnerves energy and slackens diligence as despondency. So William J. Uh, writing about William Wilber to William Wilberforce here, 
Um, Wilberforce, you know, the, uh, the member of parliament who labored for years in broken health to end the African slave trade, to bring righteousness uh, and uh, peace among the nations of the earth. Uh, he knew the future was gonna be carried with that man. And so he says, do not be weary. We need not only exhortation, but hope. The Lord has a plan the world does not know. The word of God is mighty and the world only predicts the death of the church. As Chesterton said, five times the church has gone to the dogs and every time the dog died. The story of God's people, however, is the story of this waiting in hope and action, this waiting as sometimes a remnant, as sometimes a dispirited small band for the coming deliverer, and in the meantime, looking for the fulfillment of all that he has promised. Again and again, the Lord protecting his church, raising her up when she was down, granting her victory over enemies at just the right time, restoring her faith in life, and so it was that no matter the trials and tribulations that are appointed, no matter the judgments that the Lord has visited upon her for unbelief, she yet remains in the world and grows stronger by the year, and I say surely by the century. Who would have thought that in Micah's day or in Paul's day, that church in Africa that, was, that saw so few converts in the days of that Scottish evangelist I mentioned, I quoted earlier, would today be growing by 14,000 converts every single day. What a reversal for the dark continent they talked about so many years ago. Who would have thought that the church in China, so brutalized by over a, a generation, an overtly hostile government who sought to destroy every vestige of the Christian presence, would have gone from the middle of the 20th century of 750,000 souls to well over 100 million, perhaps more, we don't know. It was just as in the time of Assyria. The, the mighty armies of Sennacherib surrounded the city, starving out the people of God. They'd taken every other city in Judah. There was no strength left, but God's people were not undone. Um, who was it? Uh, Byron wrote, the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temples of Baal, and the night of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. At just the right time, the Lord acted. There lay 120,000 Assyrians dead outside the camp. The Lord is not going to let his promises go unfulfilled. The unending hope that we have from such a passage is to us a guarantee that before the Lord returns, there will be peace yet to break forth in the earth. That is a prediction. There is a great difference, of course, between the people in Micah's day and ours. They were still looking for the first advent, but the promised ruler, of course, has been born in Bethlehem. The first half of this prophecy is already fulfilled. We have known the coming of David's long-awaited son and a virgin birth and a sinless life and the transformation of nations in the earth, miracles of surpassing power and effect across an empty tomb, an ascension to God's right hand, 
and a promise of his coming again. Half of Micah's promise has already been fulfilled in history. Now, the fulfillment of these things, as unlikely as they seem to be, was, is to us the guarantee that the rest is sure to come. Behind us, Christ born, crucified, risen, and ascended. Before us, Christ returning. And this world in that day, surely, being in every way the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Peace among the nations of the earth, fully and finally fulfilled. Such prophecies will have a glorious, everlasting fulfillment. And these promises made to those who most need hope, who most need deliverance, who, as it seems, are surrounded by enemies in the midst of troubles, in the midst of struggles. But we hear again of the coming, of the advent of one who brings light and peace and victory and joy without measure. And who can doubt such a future when the very Savior who came the first time has promised to come again the second? Well, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that your word is written for our edification and encouragement and strengthening and for the grasping of the grace that is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that you might accomplish such marvelous things through us and in this world, according to your word, for the glory of your dear.